Our blessed God, Heavenly Father, we are grateful that we can come here tonight. We're thankful for your presence with us. We're thankful for the, for the Word of God, the holy and precious Word of God. And we know that it's our duty to read it and to study it. And uh, because this is what you've given to us. You haven't told us everything, but you've given us the, the Word. And we're thankful for the Holy Spirit who helps us to take it in, to understand it, what we need and to feed our souls, to see how we are solicited uh, by the thoughts of this world, and we are dragged here and there by our own sinful nature, and how much we need to be fed by your word. We need to come to the fountain of life and have you fill us with your truth. And so, Father, tonight we I trust that as we read your word and as we sit here and look to you to speak to us that indeed you will do, the, do that and that above and beyond my little voice your voice will speak to each and every one of us here thank you that your word is powerful and rich and living and even if uh, what i say is doesn't resonate with somebody we know that your word will and could go away with something uh, maybe small or different than what I was thinking on in this passage, but that is what they need to hear. So Father, we, we thank you for the richness of your word and the power in it, and we just look to you tonight to help us to get something from you. In Jesus' name, amen. So let's start by reading the passage, Galatians 2. Okay, sorry, it's always a mystery here. It's on. I'm trying to... Uh, Good to work up. There we go. Okay, let's read Galatians chapter 2, verses 1 to 10. Then after 14 years, I went up again to Jerusalem with Barnabas, as Paul speaking, and also took Titus with me. And I went up by revelation and communicated to them the gospel which I preach among the Gentiles, but privately to those who were, who were of reputation, lest, then, lest by any means I might run or had run in vain. Yet not even Titus, who was with me, being a Greek, was compelled to be circumcised. And this occurred because of false brethren secretly brought in, who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty, which we have in Christ Jesus, that they might bring us into bondage, to whom we did not yield submission, even for an hour, that the truth of the gospel might continue with you. But from those who seem to be something, whatever they were, it makes no difference to me. God shows personal favoritism to no man. For those who seemed to be something added nothing to me. But on the contrary, when they saw that the gospel for the uncircumcised had been committed to me, as the gospel for the circumcised was to Peter, for he who worked effectively in Peter for the apostleship to the circumcised also worked effectively in me toward the Gentiles. And when James, Cephas, and John, who seemed to be pillars, perceived the grace that had been given to me, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship, that we should go to the Gentiles and they to the circumcised. They desired only that we should remember the poor, the very thing which I was also eager to do. When I was thinking about this passage, my mind went to a book I read when I was, uh, before I was married and I was living on my own, and I picked up a book called uh, 
you are what you eat. And the, uh, the basic premise of that book was about physical eating, that we tend to eat the same thing all the time, and it's good to try different things and do other things so that we don't get in a rut. And it occurred to me that maybe this passage here isn't one of your go-to passages in the New Testament. You know, there's no big verse that jumps out at us, and there's a lot of little detail in there. And uh, But this is the advantage of going through books one at a time, because we get to eat some vitamins and minerals and things that we might not otherwise go to. So here's the outline of what I want to look at tonight, just so we don't get too lost. And uh, it's the first question is, does Galatians chapter 2 verses 1 to 10 or 1 to 11 fit better with Acts 11 or Acts 15? What is the event that we're talking about here? And maybe I should just back up and say that the broad picture of what we're looking at tonight is Paul and Barnabas and Titus, they traveled to Jerusalem from Antioch. So Antioch was a, a big church. It was the, the, the mother church of the Gentiles in many ways. Paul and Barnabas got sent out of there. We don't think too much about the church of Antioch because there wasn't a letter sent to them. We read about it in Acts. But like Jerusalem was, the church in Jerusalem was probably the main church for the, the Jewish believers in Antioch. They were probably one of the main churches for Gentiles. It was about 300 miles 500 kilometers away from Jerusalem. So for Paul and Barnabas to go up to Jerusalem in that day was a big deal. And why did they go? Well, in, in Galatians chapter 2, we read that they went and they were going to discuss no less than the, the essence of the gospel. They're, they're going there to have a discussion with the leaders about what is the gospel. And there was also a group of false brothers who were insisting that the Gentiles, non-Jews, be saved by faith plus uh, circumcision, and that the Gentile Christians were, in essence, supposed to become more or less Jewish. So Paul's going to uh, confront these Judaizers head on and deal with this issue. And the result of the encounter was that the leaders of the church in Jerusalem blessed Paul to go preach the gospel of the Gentiles. And by faith alone in Christ, with no need for the Gentiles to be circumcised or to become uh, adopt Jewish customs. And they gave Paul what's called the right hand of fellowship, a nice expression. And, but they reminded him as well to remember the poor. So here's our outline tonight. We're going to think about why, when did these events take place? What was at stake? And we'll take a little time to think about what is circumcision and the false brothers and these supposed leaders. It's an interesting little expression there. Paul insists, who are these, these supposed leaders? And then we'll think about the right hand of fellowship and then similarities between Peter and Paul. So let's consider this first question. Uh, when did this event occur? He says it was 14 years after his first visit. So there are two viable possibilities for, for locating this event in time, either the, in Acts chapter 11, verses 27 to 30, or in Acts chapter 15. So let's just look at Acts chapter 11. We'll just read it for a second. And if you've got time on your hands and you want to have an interesting Bible study, just Google 
Does, does Galatians 2, 1 to 11 fit better with Acts 11 or with Acts 15? I did that and I got a lot of, lot of people who studied this question. It was actually very good. But here we are, Acts 11, verses 27 to 30, just to remind you of what happened there. In these days, prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. And the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. This they did also, and they sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. So we see already that they were trusted people. Barnabas and Saul, Acts chapter 2, verse 25, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname is Mark. So here's a couple of things to note. Agabus was a prophet from Jerusalem, had a revelation that a famine was going to happen, and the disciples agreed to send relief to the brethren in Judea. So we're, this is some 500 kilometers away. And uh, so we just read about that. And this was before Paul and Barnabas' first missionary journey that we read of in chapter 13. So we read in Galatians 2, 2 that the discussions with the church leaders was a private affair, it wasn't widespread. And, uh, you know, this is probably common sense. It's much easier to come to a consensus in a small committee than a big one. There's also mention of prophetic direction in, in the text that we read. Is this referring to Agabus's prophecy or another prophecy or, or a revelation given directly to Paul? And in Galatians, we read that the leaders asked Paul and Barnabas to continue remembering the poor. Uh, we read that, so it could correspond with Acts 11. Now in Acts 15, we read, uh, I'm just going to read there the first few verses. In Acts 15, it's often referred to as the the, uh, the conference at, at Jerusalem. <clears throat> and this is after the uh, after their first missionary journey. Acts chapter 15, the first five verses I'm going to read. And certain men came down from Judea and taught the brethren, unless you're circumcised according to the custom of Moses, you cannot be saved. Therefore, when Paul and Barnabas had no small, small dis dissension and dispute with them, they determined that Paul and Barnabas and certain others of them should go up to Jerusalem to the apostles and elders about this question. So being sent on their way by the church, they passed through Phoenicia and so on. And uh, it goes on to read, when they come to Jerusalem, they were received by the church and the apostles and the elders and they reported all these things that God had done with them. But some of the sect of the Pharisees who believed rose up saying, it is necessary to circumcise them and to command them to keep the law of Moses. So, uh, in Galatians uh, 15, Galatians 2.11, both Acts 15 and Galatians 2.11 are describing an important event in Jerusalem. Both passages involve the same people, Paul, Barnabas, Peter, James, and the Judaizers. Both passages treat the same subject. Both passages reference circumcision. But in Galatians, Paul only mentions two visits to Jerusalem up to this point, and the book of Acts records three. Acts 15 was the third visit. Therefore, this first and second language in Galatians would line up perhaps better with what we have in Acts 11. In Galatians 2, Paul says that he met with the pillars of the church in private. And in Acts 15, he says it was an open debate in public. 
So why, why Luke doesn't mention Paul's visit of Galatians 2, 1-11 and Acts 11? Well, because the answer would be that Paul's visit then was in private. So in Galatians, Paul doesn't mention the apostolic letter of Acts 15. And if Acts 15 had already occurred, then the Jerusalem apostles would have already been in public agreement on these things. So these are some of the questions people, you know, shoot back and forth. And you can say, well, does it really matter if it was in Acts 11 or in Acts 15? And I suppose in the big picture, the issue doesn't really matter. It doesn't change the issue. But it's always good to try and understand what the Word of God is saying. And as I thought about it, certainly if this, if Galatians 2, 1 to 11, does refer to the Acts 11 visit, then we can observe that the issue had to be dealt with again in Acts 15. And it was an issue that it was an ongoing concern. It wasn't an easy fix. So they had to go back and straighten it again. So there was a lot of, uh, you know, we have hindsight and we see this, but I think, you know, they had the future in front of them. They didn't know what was going, what was going to happen. And so we see Paul uh, going up there, where there was up there, and making sure that the essence of the gospel was clear. So what, in fact, was at stake what was the issue? If it was from Acts chapter 11, we know that they were delivering some relief to the poor, but if, in either case, why did Paul, and we have it here in Galatians 2, why did he confront uh, the leaders of the church in Jerusalem? Well, as the expression goes, it wasn't to discuss the, col the color of the carpet in the sanctuary in the church in Antioch, right? And sometimes we hear the phrase, this isn't a hill to die on referring to an issue that we might have differing opinions on but aren't worth fighting over, right? So this was an important issue. And uh, wise military planners choose their targets and their positions carefully, and they commit themselves to clear objectives. We must ensure that we're guarding the gospel, not our pet peeves or personal issues. That was a little commentary from the Life Application Bible. So Paul was careful to do things right. He met privately with the leaders. He said he wasn't interested in being ineffective, wasn't engaging in a public showdown. And we see here that he was running. He says he doesn't want to run in vain. He'd been running. Life was a race for the Apostle Paul. He didn't want to waste his time. He was always on a mission. So the issue that Paul brings up here is a fundamental issue. The fundamental issue, it's the, it's the essence of the gospel, the definition of the gospel. There were those who wanted Titus, a Greek, to be circumcised. So is the gospel faith in Christ plus something else? Was Paul's ministry as valid as Peter's? Were the Gentile Christians going to be second rate to Jewish Christians? So just to move along, time is moving. When the person and the work of Christ are in question, I suggest you that that's a hill to die on. Everything else, we have to just sit back and see what God's will is, right? Everything is important in its place, but there are priorities. And this is what they talked about. Okay, we'll come back to that potentially, perhaps. Um, so what what is circumcision? And I'm just going to... You can pretty much Google everything, right? You can Google what is circumcision if you really want to know. 
But uh, um, in Genesis chapter 17, God gives Abraham the, this uh, ritual of circumcision. So let me read it for you a little bit. Genesis chapter 17, verses 10 to 14. This is my covenant, which you shall keep between me and you and your descendants after you. Every male child among you shall be circumcised. And you shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. He who is eight days old among you, you shall be circumcised. Every male child in your generations, who is born in your house or bought with money from any foreigner who is not your descendant. He who is born in your house and he who is brought with your money must be circumcised, and my covenant shall be in your flesh, an everlasting covenant. And the uncircumcised male child who is not circumcised in, in the flesh of his foreskin person shall be cut off from his people. He's broken my covenant. So this was a very important ritual in the time of uh, given to Abraham. Now, if we look in Genesis chapter 12, when God calls Abraham, and God justifies Abraham, he says he's going to make Abraham great, and give him a great name and make him a nation. This continues in chapter 15, when God promises Abraham to have countless descendants. He wasn't circumcised yet. He hadn't given him the, the, the ritual of circumcision. That doesn't come until chapter 17. So it was an outward sign of the male's child's belonging to the people of God. But in Romans chapter 4, uh, Paul gives the argument. He says, look, Abraham was justified before, he was, before circumcision existed, as were others. And so... You know, get over it. Not everybody has to be circumcised to be justified. We have that example. And then in Romans chapter 2, verses 28 and 29, Paul explains that true circumcision is of the heart. Okay? True circumcision is of the heart, for he is not a Jew who is one outwardly, nor is circumcision that which is outward in the flesh, but he is a Jew who is one inwardly, and circumcision is that of the heart in the spirit, not in the letter, whose praise is not from them but from God. So Christ and Christianity is more concerned about the inward reality than outward conformity. We see that all the time. And certainly we don't need to be circumcised to be saved. It's obvious to us now, but it was an issue at the time. So let's look at some of these other little phrases here. False brethren, verse 4. We read, and this occurred because of false brethren secretly, secretly brought in who came in by stealth to spy out our liberty. So this is a military metaphor to indicate the subversive and militant nature of the evil Paul was fighting. And certainly we see that it came back and it came back. And uh, <clears throat> these, these Judaizers, they, had, they were planted in the church by someone. Perhaps they belonged to the Pharisee party mentioned in Acts 15. But it was very deliberate. It was done stealthily. And uh, so their goal was to take them away from Christ and to have them into a bondage that is not that, that didn't belong to Christ. So what's the application there? Well, Satan is always looking for helping hands to corrupt the church, whether they be backslidden Christians or unbelievers. And the identifying factor here is bondage to some other principle than Christ. Some other principle than Christ. At, our, at the Lord's Supper on Sunday, if you recall, we were thinking about that, how it's so easy to forget. 
that Christ is the center. Christ is the one we come to remember. Christ is the center of our faith and the most important part of what we do. And when we, we preach the gospel, it's the same. It's uh, Christ who is the center of our message, right? There are other things that we practice, but uh, what, is, what is the most important part of our message is Christ. And if you'll pardon a, uh, a reference to the time the Lord gave us this summer, I, th I may have already shared this, uh, but I share it to the glory of God. Uh, you know, we do, we're doing our surveys on Saturdays, and our first question is, do you believe in God? The next one is, what is your understanding of Christ? Who is Christ for you, right? So we've asked a lot of people, some 400, who, who do you think Christ is? And we've gotten all sorts of different answers, and a lot of people who've been educated in uh, different churches know who Christ is. But I have to say that, uh, and I've mentioned this before, I think, but one, one Saturday, and Bennett, Bennett was just across the street from me, and I asked this gentleman, probably 60 years old, I said, who, who, what's your understanding of Christ? Oh, and he looked at me and said, oh, Christ is everything to me. Christ is my all in all. He said, see this nice house I've had? That's because of Christ. See my wife that I've had for 40 years? That's because of Christ. And my children, it's because of in the career of him, it's all Christ. And, and, and he went on, and I said, Bennett, come here, meet this gentleman. They never left him. It was, and uh, it brings me to tears to think about it, because it, all we could say was Christ. And, and he was, you know, otherwise sane in his right mind, you know, and he was, he would just love the Lord. And um, <clears throat> I thought, there's a man who's focused on Christ. And uh, it was so beautiful to hear, Bennett, because we didn't hear that from most people. But Christ was the center. And we had a nice discussion with this gentleman. And I probably wouldn't go to, I don't know if I'd go to his church because they don't actually do things the way we like to do them. But Christ was clearly the center of his life. And that was a blessing. So he should be in our life. Now, I was just, I was intrigued by this little phrase here. He, Paul, he, he, uh, he emphasizes it quite a bit. Um, Okay, our false brothers, hope we don't have any in our church. Uh, <laughs> I don't know of any, but uh, I guess it happens, eh? So the leaders in the church, it's interesting. Paul goes up there and he says, he says, you who are of reputation, you who, who seem to be something, you who seem to be pillars. Why is he saying, he, he almost had a little bit of sarcasm in there, right? He's, essentially, you're saying, look, Simon, I don't care who you are, I'm not that impressed by your so-called standing. I mean, he's talking to the Apostle Paul. And he's saying, you know, uh, I'm sure he was respectful because they went there. But it intrigued me how he said, they seem to be, they seem to be, they seem to be. Why is he saying that? Well, I think it's because he had such a direct relationship with the Lord and the gospel that he, if they weren't going to come his way, he wasn't going their way because he knew that the Lord was with him. So fortunately, they did come around, but he didn't give them the benefit of the doubt when he went there because things were, it was too serious an issue to, to, uh, to be sort of, uh, he wasn't negotiating anything. He wasn't uh, going to be swayed by anybody. And then we have this nice little phrase here, right hand of fellowship, right? I don't know if you've ever heard that in your Christian life. 
Fortunately, the leaders of the church, James, Cephas, and John, who seem to be, seem to be pillars again, perceived that the grace that had been given to me, they gave, they gave me and Barnabas the right hand of fellowship. I don't know if you ever go to uh, gotquestions.org. They have some useful answers sometimes. I don't agree with everything they might say, but that nice little article here. Giving the right hand of fellowship was a solemn act of partnership, signifying acceptance and agreement and trust. That's a footnote from the Amplified Bible. To this day, a handshake or a clasping of the right hand or forearm is used as a way to affirm a promise, to seal a deal, to communicate mutual trust and enter a partnership. In the case of Paul and Barnabas, meeting with James and John, the giving of the right hand of fellowship seemed to have also included the idea of accepting someone into an existing group. as a handshake of fellowship. So I was visiting a brother the other day from another church, and I said, I was thinking about this, and I said, well, and on the way out, I said, I'll give you the right hand of fellowship. He said, are you going to give me a holy kiss, too? I said, no, no, not so much. So, I mean, some of these things are, you know, they're connected to the culture of the day, but the right hand of fellowship is a nice little phrase we can, we can use coming into fellowship. Now, this is a little chart, and we'll finish off with this. In Acts, Luke demonstrates... Luke, the author of Acts, that everything Peter did, Paul did as well. It's interesting. There's a parallelism in the book of Acts. There's structure in the book of Acts. And uh, Paul's the first Gentile convert was Cornelius. First Gentile convert under Paul was Sergius Paulus. They were both visited by an angel. They both healed a lame man. They both raised someone from the dead. They both were miraculously released from prison. We, we read Peter's first sermon, Paul's first sermon. Miraculous influence of the shadow, miraculous influence of the kerchief, confrontation with the magician, confrontation with the magician, remember those two stories. Worship by some Gentiles and their reaction, worship by some. So it's an interesting parallel that, that Luke most deliberately did by God's inspiration to demonstrate to all that Paul was just as much an apostle as Peter. And the, the gospel was going out to the, to the Jews and to the Gentiles, and uh, we're grateful for that. So what's our, what's our conclusion as we think about this, this passage that might not be our go-to passage when we read the Bible? But uh, there's one gospel. There's no need for Gentiles to be circumcised to be saved. There's one church. Jewish and Gentile Christians are of the same standing, and we're all of the same standing. And he kept back the Judaizers who were trying to bring people away from, from uh, Christ, it's Christ being the center of their life and their faith. And so the question that remains to us then, uh, by God's grace, are we going to fight for something? We need to fight for something. Well, let's make sure that we're fighting for the gospel, for the right cause. And, uh, you know, there is a hill to die on. That's the gospel. There's a lot of hills where it's not a hill to die on. The gospel is a hill to die on. And I was just thinking of it this afternoon. I was thinking about this, uh, <clears throat> this reminder to us. And perhaps if it helps, I was thinking about it. And you know, the Lord Jesus died on a hill for us, didn't he? And I started thinking of that song on, a, on the old rugged cross, on a hill far away to the old local promise. And uh, up Calvary's mountains and blessed Redeemer. So if we're tempted to, to get into 
you know, arguments and stuff that really aren't worth it. We should think about the Lord Jesus who did die in the hell for us. And he shed his blood for us. And by his grace, we should be faithful to him and lift him up. Our blessed God and Heavenly Father, we're thankful for our Savior who died on a hill for us on the old rugged cross. We're thankful for the gospel. We're thankful that we have something to preach and something to promote and something to fight for. And uh, if need be, <clears throat> keep us on that track. Keep us focused on Christ and on things that are most important. Bless this word to our heart in Jesus' name. Amen.